Howdy, everybody. John Fitch here, and this is the Time Off Podcast, which is a part of the Time Off Book Project. And that book comes out in 2020. You could find out more about it at timeoffbook.com. Have you ever heard of Derek Sivers? Well, I didn't know about Derek Sivers until he was on an interview years ago on the Tim Ferriss podcast. And Tim has interviewed some wonderful people on his podcast, very successful people. And Derek's interview still to date is one of my favorite. And I could elaborate on that, but you could go listen to that interview. But it is a really cool thing for me to say that Derek was on the Time Off podcast recently. I shot him an email, talked to him about the project, and he agreed to do the interview with me. And a bit about Derek is he's a musician, producer, was a circus performer, a technology music entrepreneur, a TED speaker, and he's published some fantastic books and has some coming up soon. And his book's called Anything You Want. And it's his story about everything he learned while starting, growing, and selling a business. And that business was CD Baby and Host Baby. Derek is, he's an introvert, but I think when he decides to share his stories, he's brilliant because he's a slow thinker. And he loves finding a different point of view on the human experience. He's now living in Oxford, England. He's a California native. But I'll just dive into the conversation. You're going to learn a lot from Derek. We pretty much talk about everything in life. (laughs) Thanks for your attention. Enjoy. Yeah, great. Well, right before diving in, I just also wanted to say, so I'm in the middle of wrapping up my first book, uh, which is based off of this podcast. And your post the other day, cut out everything that's not surprising, was <laughs> the greatest editing advice that I've been given. Oh. And, I'm, and I'm working with an editor right now. And I, I was needing a different story for me to do this last sort of pass of editing with my co-author. And that, that's just my theme. Every paragraph I'm looking at, I'm asking myself that, that question. So nice. thank you. Yeah, it, for my book, it, it made a huge difference when I decided that I was going to print hardcover books because nobody likes killing trees. And so I looked at every sentence, like, is this worth killing a tree over? <laughs> like, wow. does a tree need to, di- to die for this sentence to live? I was like, no, if, if the book can possibly do without it, if, the, if I can possibly make this book fewer pages, I should. So it's like, it made me go back through every sentence. Like, is this hardcover worthy? No. That was mm. a nice uh, editing help for me too. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing so much now. Your frequency has increased on your, on your post, on your site and uh, from the comments alone, I know I'm not alone in enjoying them. Uh, how is that, before we dive into the, my first question, how has that been for you, just that, that process of posting something at that frequency? Um, not loving it. Um, you saw my post about being a slow thinker. Mm-hmm. And I think it's often 
to a fault that people try to um, stick with their first answer to something. Like I think the first answer to something is usually not very interesting. Mm-hmm. I, w- I want to go beyond the first answer. Mm-hmm. And the problem with the Daily Post to me is I find like, I was thinking in that mentality of like, I have to come up with some, I have to come up with a post today. Shit, what am I going to write? I don't know. And I'd like start to write something and I'm like, okay, that's something I can post. I'll just use that. But it kind of felt like before I would have taken twice as long on this thing and I would have thought it over deeper and I would have slept on it and I would have come back to it a week later and I would have thought of some more, like I would have discussed it with a couple friends and bounced some ideas around and come back to that again and then post it later once it had aged or I had found a more surprising angle or I had, but, but because I'm trying to post something every day, I was post, it feels like I'm posting them too soon mm-hmm. when they're not worth someone's time yet. So I'm actually on the verge of deciding that, no, this is no longer a daily thing. I was doing that just because Seth said to, <laughs> and it's, it was exactly a month ago today that I started. So I'm like, yeah. Okay, it's been a month. And actually, I took my kid to Paris for a few days and like had no phone, no computer, no nothing. So I didn't post anything those days. And I'm kind of thinking like, all right, I think what this exercise has taught me is I'm going to post more often, but not make this a, a daily requirement. I mean, mm. I'm writing every single day anyway. I write for hours a day anyway. But if I'm talking about like something publicly, if I'm just feeling like something isn't ready to post today, I won't post something too early just because I said I would. I'll consider it deeper and maybe post it the next day. And I don't know, that's where I'm at now. You are known for enjoying solitude. And in one of your posts about disconnecting, when people ask you what they can do to be more successful or to finish something, one of your pieces of advice is to disconnect. And that doesn't have to be for an entire day or a month sabbatical. But the point is, uh, turn off distractions, your phone, Wi-Fi, and you could create, you could write code, you could practice something. Point is, you're focusing, and that's actually rare and valuable these days, is to be sort of indistractable. Can you paint a picture of moments, significant moments of solitude that you've had based on looking at your site? You mentioned at the ages of 22 and 27 were some key moments of solitude. Do you care elaborating about those? Sure. I mean, first I'll talk about the reason why. Mm. Is I think that we have some things in our nature, like the biological reason, or let's say, what do you call that? The evolutionary or hereditary reason why mm-hmm. when we get a, a box of cookies, we just want to devour the whole thing. It's because, you know, for eons, our uh, our ancestors, when they would come across some food, it would often mean that this is the only chance they're going to get to eat for a couple days. And so they would devour that because that was a good survival tactic, right? And so maybe people who did that uh, lived and people who didn't died, right? So, But here we are in a different age where eating all the sugar and salt you want is not a smart thing to do anymore. So we have to go against our nature uh, and make ourselves stop. Mm. So I think we're in the same thing with distractions. 
and I'm not just going to blame phones or the internet because, you know, I'm sure it was different distractions 20 years ago and 200 years ago. But I often think in terms of competitive advantage. I like getting a little bit of a competitive streak in me thinking like, what is, what is the rest of the world doing? And therefore, almost by default, it's going to be more valuable to do the opposite because it's going to show me a different point of view or just help me stand out from the crowd or whatever. So part of the disconnect thing is just because uh, of that smug satisfaction you get when you look at the rest of the world, everybody's addicted to their phones. and You just know that not doing that will give you an edge. But it's also uh, because I think people get literally addicted to the connection, to constantly connecting and, and uh, constantly pinging and getting those little notifications. And I think it's an addiction. And so I also have this kind of core belief. And whenever I notice that I'm feeling addicted to something by any definition, even if it's like having mints in the car or something like that. I used to always have mints in the car. And one day I like ran out of mints and I noticed myself going, oh no, <laughs> I need mints. Quick, where's the store? And I was like, whoa, hold on, dude. What, what did I just say? I need mints? No, no, no. And so like since that day, no more mints in the car ever again, right? Mm. Like that, that felt too close to addiction. And I don't think of myself as having an addictive personality. I've never had a problem with drinking your drugs or anything like that. But like anything that starts to look like addiction uh, makes me run the other way. So with that as the context, yeah, um, being, uh, being hyper-connected seems to be something that we need to deliberately avoid, even if it's our, our nature and everything and our, our yearning and our wanting uh, seems to want to do it. Sometimes we have to like deliberately cut that off. Mm. So you were asking about, um, yeah, the two, two big times in my life that yeah, I did, I guess I've mentioned somewhere in my blog, it was a little bit of a different time though, meaning these two times when I was 22 and 27 were kind of pre-internet. So it was, it was a more extreme kind of cutoff. Uh, so yeah, first when I was 22, I had been immersed in the heart of ambition and drive in New York City. And it was a time in my life when I was working seven days a week and had been for two and a half years, like without hardly ever a day off. Um, I had a regular day job in New York City, like 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. Then every single Friday at 6 p.m., I would dash out of there, run down to the bus station, take a three-hour bus up to New England and do gigs all weekend in New, Eng uh, in New England as a musician, like all day uh, Saturday and Sunday. And then I'd sleep up there Sunday night. Then I'd catch like the 6 a.m. bus back down to New York City Monday morning and go back to my Monday through Friday job. And do, you know. So I'd been doing that for two and a half years and saved up 12,000 bucks. And I was like, all right, $12,000. <laughs> I was like, I can quit my job now. So really my first disconnect had nothing to do with that little preface I said. I, I wasn't we didn't have cell phones. There was no internet, <laughs> you know? So it had nothing to do with like needing to disconnect from that stuff because that stuff didn't exist yet. This was more just me saying like, I want to give my full attention to my music. And so I just thought it made sense to do it somewhere besides like noisy, crowdy, crowded, congested New York City. 
So I found a summer cottage on the Oregon coast in a little town that had a population of 50 in the summer and only two people in the winter. So I went there in the winter for six months. Uh, that, that winter, the population was three. So I stayed there for six months by myself, no internet, no TV, no media, just working on my music full time. Uh, and I'd make like one phone call a day to my girlfriend in Boston. But other than that, I had no contact with anybody. It was amazing. So that six months, I wrote and recorded 50 songs. I read a ton of books. I got really fit from exercising on the beach and just had a really amazing, transformative time in my life. Like it was one of those major, major milestones. You know, when you go through like a huge change in life, whether it's uh, going to college or getting married or whatever people do like that that six months at the Oregon coast to me was like a, a very clear like transformation of, like before and after I I came out a different person and I went that and Derek that sounds really active like it wasn't just you were sitting there twiddling your thumbs staring out at the sky in the landscape yeah. <laughs> there, there, it was a lot of work yeah so when you first asked me. Sorry, I guess we kind of skipped the intro stuff. Hi, audience. I'm Derek. Okay. <laughs> um, so when you first asked me uh, about doing this podcast, my first reaction was like, uh, no, dude, I think you got the wrong guy because I am not a relaxed kind of guy. Like, I don't, I don't really do downtime. I'm mm. really, really driven. And I, I bounce out of bed at 5 a.m. and I work every minute I'm awake until I go to sleep at 11 or something like that. Um, and so this uh, disconnecting at the age of 22 and going to the Oregon coast was in the name of that. It's more like, I'm so damn ambitious. I want nothing to come between me and my music. So yeah, while I was there for six months, yeah, I was up early every single morning. I like had an exercise routine. I had a practice routine. I was like, learning new things. I had a reading routine. I was like reading three hours a day. I was practicing five hours a day. I was writing four hours a day. Like it was, it was intense, but it was, it was me time, you know? So that's, we'll have to talk about that later. Like the, the definition of work, right? Sure, to sure. me, that's play. You know, when I see my kids sitting there playing with Lego for six hours, we don't call that work. He's playing with Lego. So I, I don't see what I'm doing is any different than that. Mm. When I was 27, I did a version of that again. I was back living in New York City again, and I had been totally like uh, pushing myself a little too much. But mostly I just felt like New York City was giving me a lot of friction in my life that I didn't like. It's just like, you know, the, the traffic, the noise, the density, the crowds. So I moved up to Woodstock, uh, which is deep in the forest. Found a little 1920s barn at a, at a dead end road by a swamp, about a two hour drive north of New York City. Um, got a little barn house there and just, again, like just focused on my music. But all in all, the, the common thread between these and other times I disconnected is solitude. Because yeah, solitude freaks out some people, but I just love it. I have often, often been with someone and wished I was alone. Like many times in life. That feels like the definition of loneliness, right? When you're like, yeah. you're actually around somebody else, but you feel alienated or whatever, and you wish that you weren't there. Like that to me, like feels lonely, feels bad, feels... Ugh. But I have never 
been alone and wished that I wasn't. I have always loved the times I'm alone. I feel like I could do that almost indefinitely. Well, thank you for looking at it that way. And my goal with time off is to expand the connotations of what it means. And a lot of times when I first started, people were like, wait, you're going to only talk about paid time off from work or vacations? Mm. Like, that sounds really boring. I was like, no, like in this example, the way I look at it, Derek, is it's time off from, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Paul Graham's maker versus manager. And like, Mm -hmm. to me, it's a beautiful example of taking time off from New York City, from the grind, from this concept of being around lots of people where people are controlling your time, whether you're aware of it or not, and going more into this solitude, which is you time. And that's, uh, yes, it's a form of work, but to me, it's time off from some defaults that I'm, I'm guilty of myself. And before I know it, sometimes I'm doing 10 people's work and I haven't shipped anything from, from myself. And so to take time off from doing other people's work to, to focus on the things I want to create is where this value just spoke of. Cool. Um, and so 22 and 27 is, it's been a while since then, I assume. <laughs> yeah, that was a while ago. I'm 50 now. Yeah, cool. So have you had any significant sort of disconnects or something similar to that uh, in recent years? Anything recent feels different because when I think back about those two times, they were both pre-internet. When I was 22, it was like entirely before the internet was invented. And then when I was 27 and moved up to Woodstock, yes, there was internet, but it was like dial-up modems. So it's interesting to think back about how internet usage with a dial-up modem was a different thing. You would like dial the modem to go online, it would make that cute connection noise. And then you would go online, do what you needed to do, and then you would disconnect again so that people in the house could use the phone, right? Mm-hmm. And I hadn't thought about that change in a while um, since like preparing for this interview, honestly. I was like, oh yeah, that was a really different process. That it was this very deliberate thing about like you'd go online, get, get what you needed, then get offline. Mm-hmm. I kind of missed that. But anyway, um, Since then, when my son was born, I wanted to give him my full attention. I guess, sorry, I'm interrupting my own sentence because I just realized I think that's been the common threads of my disconnecting times is it hasn't been as much a going away from as a going towards. Mm -hmm. Every time I was disconnecting, it's because there was something that was so important to me, that was just more important than everything else. And I wanted to give that one thing my full attention without any distractions. Every time I, was, every time I disconnect, it's for that reason. It's because there's one thing I want to give my undivided attention to. So yeah, the, the first two that I talked about at 22 and 27 were to focus on my music. But then, yeah, seven years ago, I had a kid and just wanted to give him my full attention. I was, at the time I was living in Singapore and I was very social and I had a lot of friends there and I was meeting with everybody and I was in the middle of everything and doing tons of public speaking and saying yes to everything. But then I had this like great six month old baby at home. I was like, you know what? No, I just want to give him 
every single moment of my non-working time. Like any moment I'm not working, that time should go to him, not him and whoever else asks for it. So moving to New Zealand was this uh, very deliberate, like how far away can I get from the rest of the world? <laughs> Even yeah. choosing where in New Zealand to live, I like avoided any cities and went for like a little small town called Nelson where I knew nobody and said, here, here's where uh, we're going to raise our kid, like away from all distractions. And so, yeah, I, I did it for the last seven years. Like just spent, uh, I was basically like a half-time, full-time dad where just any time I wasn't working, he had my full attention. And I did nothing else but that. In New Zealand, was there still a good amount? I mean, a remote town that you didn't know anyone there just by doing that alone there's a lot of disconnecting i believe you have a few definitions of what you mean by disconnecting yeah so i guess that's what i meant when i said that that my previous my my younger disconnecting times felt more disconnected because i was like physically disconnected from everybody and digitally disconnected like I was just off the map it's like bye everybody I'll be back <laughs> in six months let me know how it goes actually you know what's funny they gave me a new perspective on the news it was the OJ Simpson thing when like just before I went off to the Oregon coast like OJ Simpson had uh, the, the whole like white bronco or whatever it was like you know did he do it or did he not and it was like in the news every single day, all anybody was talking about was O.J. Simpson. It's like, then I went away, I was off at the Oregon coast, cut off for six months from everybody and everything, came back after six months, and people were still talking about it. I was like, wow, I missed nothing. <laughs> like, you people kind of like flittered about the news every single day and you got nowhere. Wow, that just really put the news in perspective for me. So yeah, there's like, there's different definitions of disconnecting, right? Like you can disconnect physically, but not digitally, right? So that's what I see people, this kind of Instagram culture of, hey, look at me, I'm somewhere super far away and exotic. I'm in Cambodia. And they're just like on their phones all the time. It's like, well, you're not really in Cambodia. You're, you're physically in Cambodia, but really like everything about your presence is just exactly, you know, back in Chicago or where you're from or whatever it may be. Like, you haven't actually disconnected yourself at all. Like, part of what defines us as being somewhere is that we're not somewhere else. So, anyway, um, yes, when I went to New Zealand seven years ago, I was disconnecting myself physically. I took myself out of the game, the rat race, the grind. I also kind of turned off my ambition for those seven years. You can go disappear somewhere and read or write or travel or whatever, but if you still use the internet, you're not really disconnected, like the Cambodia example. So we can say that that's disconnecting physically, taking yourself away, but staying digi digitally connected. So then the opposite is you can disconnect from the internet, turn your phone completely off or set it in airplane mode, turn off your home broadband or whatever, and you could disconnect yourself digitally but still be physically present in your regular life you could still see your friends 
hang out with your family, whatever it may be, even though you've disconnected the internet. So yeah, that's disconnecting digitally, but staying physically connected. But then there's us thinking about nuances in that too, that you could disconnect from social media and news and just stop all of that noise from strangers, but still keep your internet, internet connection on and just use your phone only to talk to your friends, for example. I think of that as like separating the signal from the noise. Mm-hmm. So you shut off the noise, but not shutting off the good quality stuff. That reminds me, Derek, of like I've yeah. recently just been, sometimes I'll stare at my, my iPhone and, and be like, wow, there's so many powerful <laughs> distraction engines in there. But I was like, I asked myself when I was journaling what the most valuable application I had on it was. And my answer came to my contacts app mm. because there is, those are human beings that I've, and I went through all the names and I was like, wow, I actually into, I mean, I don't keep up with all of them because it's too much to manage, but I was like, these are each name I read on there led to an, I was billowed in, in memories of nice. human connection. And so to your point that you can still have this quality communication and this amazing technology, but to, to sit there and really ask yourself, what am I using it for? Because like the internet right. can can be used to still talk to certain friends directly. You and I are using the internet right now to, to exactly. chat. Yeah. Um, but it can also completely overwhelm you with brain candy if you're not careful. It's funny. I, I don't often look over people's shoulders at what they're doing. So it blows my mind when I see people that have like Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and Snapchat or whatever on their phone. And I go, Oh God, what do you like? <laughs> how could you do that? Cause maybe it's just, um, I never did that. Like I have never in my life had a social media app installed on my phone. I just never did that. And one thing that I did long ago that really helped a lot. Like, I don't think I would have gotten addicted to those things anyway, because I just don't find it that appealing. But if I did, this one hack really helped is um, for Facebook and Google and whatever else where I had accounts, I would use a random password generator to generate one of those really long 32 character long, like super jumbled random passwords. And I made that my password for my Twitter account or Facebook or whatever. So I didn't even know what my password was. So when it came down to the option of like putting it on my phone where I didn't have my, a password manager on my phone, I was just like, oh, I can't type that 32 character long jumble. Like, oh, never mind. That's just not worth the effort. And besides, like, why would I want that noise on my phone? So I think that the noise of strangers, it, to me, it just feels like when I think of the, the public discourse, it just seems like everybody shouting, like, I would never want that. I would never want to let that into my house. I don't understand um, that. So yeah, I, I often, I basically only use my phone to, uh, to call and text friends and maybe use it for GPS when I'm going to a new place. Um, but that's about all I use it for. I, in fact, even on the, um, the little browser built into the phone, I went into preferences and I had it uh, turn off all cookies, uh, disable all cookies. So I don't even have the ability to like log into any site. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's really nice. So it's like, okay, if I have to look up you know, movie listings or 
the address of a place I'm going to. I can use the browser for that. But I like that deliberately crippling something to make it uh, less useful because, yeah. Anyway, sorry, that's we're going off on a random subject about. It's all good. So one thing I've been very inspired by is in an article where you talked about your, your son, I, I was reminded of the beauty in the wisdom that if you really want to learn, teach. And you said by cultivating your son's long attention span, you're cultivating your own. And mm -hmm. so I'd love to talk about these outings, these moments where you say you, you, know, you, you drop everything to be very present with your son to play and explore. Can you paint a picture for me? Like what sorts of things are you doing together? I don't have a really interesting answer for that because we just do whatever he wants. I usually just take him outside and follow his lead. Um, he's the leader. He makes up games and adventures or makes things out of sticks and tape and cardboard. And I just follow along. In New Zealand, I would put him in the car and take him off to uh, nearby forests or beaches every day. Uh, we're living in Oxford, England now, so we might just head to the local park or it's actually a, a really short, pleasant train ride to London, like 50 minutes long. So we often just go into London. Uh, last week, it's just a two-hour train to Paris, so last week I just took him to Paris on impromptu. We went to Paris for a few days, because um, why not? <laughs> and so if we're in a city, it's kind of the same deal. Like we just, we also don't plan anything in the city. We just kind of step outside our door and he leads the way. Like we just turn left or right or whatever way looks interesting. And it's really cool. Like he just, he gets really into details. Like in, um, in Paris, like I tried to take him to the Louvre and he wasn't interested. He was just like, dad, look at these, look at these drops of water on this leaf. Look, this is so cool. And it's like, and we're like, Oh my God, puddle. You know, <laughs> that's way more interesting to him than the Louvre, you know? So, uh, instead of trying to force him into adult stuff, I, I just find it more fun to just him, let him lead the way and I just am there to be his playmate. That's so beautiful. I've been, uh, in, in the book, Time Off, there's a whole deep dive that we did on play and specifically um, looking at the child mindset. And there is this uh, TED speaker, I'm forgetting her name, I think Alison Gopnik. Alison um, Gopnik, yeah. Yeah, and her beautiful analogy of a, a child has lantern consciousness and as you age as an adult and you have to manage life and pay taxes and all these silly things, we, we develop more of a spotlight consciousness. And so I like mm. when you sit there and play with your son and follow the lead, you're sort of following his, his lantern-like consciousness on these adventures. It's really beautiful. And, and I can imagine that when you're not following a schedule, when I follow a schedule, time, a whole day will go by. I'll be like, wait, like, I think I woke up this morning and how is it 8 p.m. now? Whereas, <laughs> whereas when, when you do things like you're saying unplanned, I feel that for me, time slows down. What, what about that experience for you? Does it feel like time is slowing down with your son? I know what you're talking about. There's some days where the day flies by, but Oh, there are lots of times where I mean, it's like I'm not supposed to admit this, but sometimes the stuff that he's interested in, interested in is not as interesting to me. Like sometimes he really just kind of wants to like build something in the sand for like three hours. 
And so sometimes that three hours can feel like nine hours. But for the most part, I find it's not the time that changes. It's more like when I'm with him, what changes is the thoughts that are running through my head. Mm. Right? So when I'm alone, when I'm working, I'm thinking of myself and my work like all the time. Like my head is just filled with the thoughts of what I'm working on. So when I'm with him, it's more like meditation. The thoughts of my own stuff come into my head, but I just immediately just let them drift back out again and keep my attention back on him. So uh, I aim to just stay fully engaged in his reality, seeing things through his eyes. And yeah, I'm, I'm no expert on meditation, but it's just like from, from what I know about it, it's like kind of that, that constant reminder whether it's just focus on the breath, just thoughts will come into your head, just let them go back out again, go back to focusing on the breath. So to me, it's like, oh, focus on the kid. <laughs> thoughts will come in, let them go back out again, focus on the kid. I like it though, it's peaceful. Everyone has their, their preferred methods and I like that you've added a new one. I'm, I'm sort of method agnostic. I'm like, hey, mm-hmm. if, you, if you're getting to inner peace, uh, centering inner clarity that you mentioned or any sort of focus, like, whether you're washing dishes or building a sandcastle right. with your son, like good on you. That's sort of meditating as far as I defined it. I like that. Yeah, it's funny. I just realized today that when I walk, I get ideas. Like when I walk, I can think and let my mind roam and just focus on whatever. But when I bike, I can't. Like my, I can't think of anything else while I'm cycling, maybe because it's just like faster and more intense and I'm usually cycling like in a city, I guess. There's no time to think of anything else. So I've heard some people that are like rock climbers say that, that there's no time to focus on anything but your next grip or focusing on your fingertips or whatever and thinking about like the difference between uh, choosing an activity where you can do something mellow. Maybe, you know, you're chopping vegetables and thinking doesn't require that much thought to chop a vegetable. It doesn't require that much thought to walk down mm. the street or walk down a trail, but there's some things that do require your full attention. You might like choose, choose an activity, walking or cycling uh, or whatever it may be based on whether you're in need of some more thought or in need of shutting off your thoughts. Yeah. Beautifully said. You had mentioned that there has been a period recently that you were on a semi sabbatical and that really got my attention. The, the emphasis on semi for the last six years, give or take, mm-hmm. what, what were you doing? What did the semi sabbatical in, involve? And I'm curious, what did that do for you? When my son was like six months old and I said, you know what? No, I don't want this distracted upbringing. I just want to give him my full attention for the next five or six years. I got that idea from John Lennon, by the way. Like, um, I remember I, I was a Beatles fan when I was a teenager, and I remember hearing that John Lennon had two kids. Um, his first uh, kid, Julian, was born at the height of Beatlemania, and so, like, he spent no time with Julian. So then he was, I think, 35 uh, when he had his second kid, um, Sean. And he said, this time... I'm just going to stop everything and give him my full attention. So he like just told his agent, like the answer is no to everything. And he just disappeared for five years and he was just a full-time dad 
for the first five years of his son's life. And I just remember like making a little note when I was a teenager, like, yeah, that's, that's a cool way to do it. I think if I ever have a kid someday, I'll do the same thing. So yeah, it's like when my kid was born, like I said, I was like super distracted. I was living in Singapore and saying yes to everything. And I just said, no, I just want to do the John Lennon thing and just disappear for five years. So I say semi-sabbatical because of what I said earlier, where I was still, I was still online, but I shut down everything I was doing. Like no more, no more projects. I like had a, a book publishing project I was doing. I shut that down, but I just really wanted to give him all of my uh, possible time. Um, so that's why I say semi-sabbatical because when he was asleep or with his mom, then yeah, I'd be online working. So I wasn't that cut off. Um, I was part-time sabbatical. I also started considering myself retired when people would say, uh, what do you do? I just thought, well, I'm retired for now. But I mean, the truth is I was still writing a book. I was answering emails. I was learning a new programming language and stuff like that. Mm. So in the, in the semi parts where it was more sabbatical, like what did that provide you? The meditation effect we said a few minutes ago where it's like, I was just really, really focused on, on him. And also, you know, there was uh, because we were in New Zealand, I mean, God, when I wrote one thing on my blog once about uh, my approach to parenting, some people said like, Oh, I find it tough to, to give my kid that kind of attention and not be distracted. And I said, well, it depends where you are. Like mm. if I, if I was sitting in a living room in my house in Iowa, um, then you know, my kid's like sitting there playing with Lego on. I'm just at home with all of the distractions of home. Then yeah, I might find that hard too, but I just, I took him out like every possible, anytime it was like time to play, I just really wanted to raise a kid in nature. Right. So even since he was like nine months old, uh, we moved to New Zealand when he was nine months old. So as soon as we arrived, just anytime I was on duty, I was like, right, let's go out. And we'd just like go out to the beaches or the forests or the fields or the rivers or whatever. And um, I just got so connected with um, both nature and place. So I, I grew up in America entirely till the age of 40, but I have never felt as connected to a country before as I do to New Zealand. Like all the plants and birds and sounds and smells. Like I think I spent, when I counted up, I multiplied like, how many hours a week I usually spent taking him out to play, multiplied by 52 weeks, multiplied by the six weeks, I mean, six years I was there, I realized that it was about 9,000 hours I spent in those six years just outside in nature with him. I was like, whoa, 9,000 hours. That's like almost that, um, remember the uh, Andrews Erickson? Um, yeah, the 10,000 hour rule. Yeah, the 10,000 hour rule about skill mastery. So you're, you're a master of being like nature dad. Almost. <laughs> um, yeah, but I just realized like, wow, I, I didn't think about that. I mean, like, no wonder I feel so connected to that place. It was like, I spent 9,000 hours just on the forests and beaches and fields of New Zealand. Like, I just got to know every bird, every kind of moss and plant and ferns and all that kind of stuff. Like, I just, yeah, I'm just... New Zealand feels like my true home now because I just gave it my full attention mm. like that. It sounds, uh, I, was, I was having a dinner last night and New Zealand came up as a shared desire of some of the people I was having dinner with. We all wanted to go and 
plan a, a hiking trip and it sounds so heavenly and you left there and so mm. i'm i'm well, curious before, yeah go ahead well hold on before you consider it too heavenly i, I gotta say like <laughs> while i was living there i would often tell my friends that especially friends that lived in america that said oh i want to come visit i was like eh. like i did go visit there once in 2004 years before i moved there and like the total cost of a two-week trip including airfare and hotels and just some various activities it was like twelve thousand dollars like it's furiously expensive to like mm. get all the way there and once you're there things cost about twice what they do in america and all in all like it's not that different from say like oregon or vermont or montana like i kind of think like don't don't go spend you know ten thousand bucks to go to new zealand if you haven't been to montana or oregon or vermont yet like don't you know it's it's not that different like it's kind of amazing that you can you can get in a plane for like 16 hours and you get out of the plane and it looks like you haven't left mm. like it looks almost the same it's not like i don't know i, I tell my friends like look if you want to get a good bang for your travel buck like go to india go to japan go to russia go to thailand go to china like get like a real bang for your buck don't just go to you know an, an alternate Oregon. Mm. So that said, it's a great place to live. So I always tell people like, don't bother visiting. But yeah, if you want to go raise a kid somewhere, hell yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so but after like you had mentioned previously, it became home for you. And you recently uh, uprooted from there to to move to Oxford. Yeah. What what led to that? I'm, I'm curious, was there a significant moment or thought process that that led you to make that, I assume, difficult decision? I just wanted my kid to experience different cultures. I wanted to move, uh, I wanted him to grow up in, in Singapore. Uh, his mom said no. <laughs> so we agreed on Oxford, England. Um, I just wanted him to kind of just, he had been only in New Zealand his whole life. Uh, so I just wanted him to ex experience different languages, different ways of living, different um, cultures uh, and just for me personally I was just ready to be around ambitious people again I think because a lot of my friends are very accomplished and famous or whatever compared to my super super hyper ambitious friends I feel like a slacker comparison to them and so I kind of had started to define myself a bit as a as an unambitious slacker then I realized it was all relative because compared to everybody else around me, I'm like, you know, almost off the chart ambitious. And I'm like, oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So I'm, I was missing being around ambitious people again. I was feeling ready to end my semi-sabbatical. I was just looking to kind of get back into the game again, whatever that game be. That's why I was ready to leave New Zealand now. But um, it was leaving New Zealand to me was like tearing a baby from its mother I not just I not just cried, but I sobbed many times my last week there. And often if like I'm talking to somebody from New Zealand or if somebody asks me that question, like, so what did you love about New Zealand? I'll like start crying when I talk about it. Mm. Like, it really affected me mm. uh, in a big way. That was really hard to leave, but it yeah. was the right thing to do for now. I do consider it my long-term home. I'll go, I'll go back there. You know, Derek, one thing I really appreciate throughout your body of work uh, and what I mean is 
well, actually, I mean, I haven't, I assume it applies to also your, your programming and in your book, anything you want, it also applies to your business uh, methodology, but this concept of subtracting, so less is more. And I wanted to know as someone who is a great example of living a life, you've, you've made a lot of really important decisions to subtract which ones, one to three significant subtractions that you've made that have led to a significant inner peace or maybe success for you? I don't know about success, but it's funny. I, I wonder if it's even a different thing. I heard somebody once say, uh, there was some book somewhere that said, you can't shrink your way to success. Mm. I still ponder that sometimes. but um, But as far as you said peace um, or effectiveness. Yeah, effectiveness or inner peace. I think inner peace yeah. is one of the things I'm I'm most interested in because I, I right. in my network there's so many people that come to me overwhelmed. Like they're just right. They have they have a lot of abundance, but not a lot of inner peace. Okay, so the core idea I think is that I wrote a an article on my site about this. Um, it's a simple. I, I usually try to give these things memorable URLs so I can just say them off the top of my head. So it's sivers.org slash subtract. I wrote an article there about this where the core idea is that when we want to make a change in our life, we often think that we need to add something to get where we want to be. You're like, okay, I'm here. I want to be there. What do I need to do? Or, or what tool can I use? Or what techniques can I use to get to where I want to be? Like what, what information do I need to get me there? So I think the common thread of all those things I just said is there's some form of adding. It's like, I need more information or more techniques or uh, more space or more time or more this or more that. But it takes a while to realize that often um, subtracting something that's already in your life is the better solution to get you where you want to be. If you think you need to add a vacation to your life, maybe instead what you need is to subtract your interactions with a particularly stressful person that's you know, causing you these feelings thinking that you need a vacation. Maybe there's actually a person you need to remove from your life and suddenly you don't need a vacation anymore. You just needed to subtract that person. Or if you think you need to add more hours to the day, Maybe instead what you need to do is subtract all of these distractions and procrastination and find a, a way of just getting straight into what you need to do minus the obstacles. Or if you, need to, if you think you need to add more space to your life, maybe what you need is to subtract your stuff. Mm. So here's one that came up for me recently, like just a few weeks ago. I had so many things I wanted to do. It felt like I never had enough time. Like I wanted to make music and learn a language and build a bicycle and build a mobile app. I've never made a mobile app before. I wanted to make my mobile app. And I'm living in England now. Oh my God, I want to travel to Europe. I have a list of 49 places I want to go to. And I had a dozen more things like that. And I, I was freaking myself out going, ah, I want to do all of these things. But most importantly, like desperately, passionately, more than anything, I really wanted to finish writing my next book. 
So that felt like a dilemma to me. It's like, I really do want to finish writing my next book. That is the most super important thing. But I also really want to make music and I really want to learn a language and I really want to build a bicycle and all these other things. So I was trying to find ways to add more time and I was actually getting resentful of anybody that was taking a single minute of my time. I was getting irritable at it. And like you said, feeling overwhelmed or burnt out. But after a long time of feeling this pain of appointment, I decided to take a new look at it. And so one morning I just kind of like woke up and I looked at these two guitars that had been sitting there for a long time and this music recording equipment that I had bought long ago and was sitting there beckoning me every single day and every single day I was feeling guilty because I wasn't using it. And I looked at it all and I was just like, you know, like three hours spent making music is three hours I could be spending on my book or learning something new or doing these other things I want to do. And I just, once I heard myself kind of in that thought process, I was like, wow, this is, I think this is something I need to subtract. I need to get rid of this. And weirdly enough, that just felt like the right answer right away. And so literally like that same day, I called up a musician friend of mine here in Oxford. I was like, dude, could you use a couple more guitars? And he's like, oh my God. (laughs) And um, I was like, and how about a synth? Do you need a synth? He's like, yes. Oh my God, that synth of yours, that's like the, that was like my dream synth. I would, he said, you seriously don't want it? I was like, no, dude, it would actually make me really happy if you would use it. In in fact, here, you want my speakers? He's like, yes. (laughs) So I just gave him everything and he's thrilled. And that guy, he's a professional musician. He's using it every single day. Whereas I had that stuff sitting here for like nine months, just looking at me, making me feel guilty. So I gave away all of my music equipment, which really means like the meaning behind that is like, I give up on making music. I have now removed that from my self-identity, from my list of things that I tell myself I'm going to do. And so I kind of looked around at more stuff, like this idea of building a bicycle. I was like, you know what? I think that's one of those like in theory rather than in practice things where it's like, I like the idea of it, but come on, like in the big picture, like how much is that going to improve my life versus finishing my book? You know, like, no, that's, finishing my book would make a huge difference in my life. Having a bicycle, like building my own bicycle, what the, where did I get that idea? Okay, <laughs> I'm letting go of that one. I was like, okay, then something like making the mobile app. I was like, okay, I don't need to delete that. That's just an idea but I'm going to think of it in a new way. I'm just filing that whole thing and like literally putting it in a folder on my computer um, that just called someday, which is just like, all right, that's filed away. Someday when I feel like making that app, it is now tucked away in a folder called someday with all the research and everything I know about it, but I'm not going to do that now. In fact, it might never happen and I'm totally cool with that. And I kind of went through a few other things that were on my plate. And I just said, yeah, I don't really need this either. I don't really do that. It's like, yeah, those, that plan I had to like travel around Switzerland. Yeah, maybe, but you know, time is, is not infinite or, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> it's um, 24 hours a day, et cetera, et cetera. Like we can only do so much. So I just removed all of these things until like basically the only two things left are finishing my book and being with my kid. That's all I'm doing in my entire life right now. Yeah, now most days I work on my book from 5 a.m. to 10 p.m. 
Mm. That's I like that there is the concept of subtracting physical items to help you focus on what it is you're actually doing in your case, literally physically, I'm subtracting this music equipment, this bike equipment, uh, and just getting back to the core essentials. I'm interested, Derek, in subtracting also knowledge or subtracting (laughs) strongly held beliefs, which is all (laughs) under the theme of unlearning, which you've written about. I had a whole podcast episode with Kevin Kelly about learning how to unlearn being a crucial meta skill. I'm, I'm, I really want to know uh, what you're learning right now, and therefore, what are you having to unlearn to be successful in learning those things? Well, the most obvious example for me recently was even just starting to look into the music business again after 10 years gone. So uh, for those of you listening, so I, I had a long history in the music business. It was basically my entire life from the age of 14 until 36, 38, 38, sorry, from 14 to 38, I was in the music business. And it was my entire life, my sole focus, my every waking thought was music. It's from the age of 14 to 29 as a professional musician and from 29 to 38 um, running cdbaby.com. So I was, it was like my everything, my whole world. It was like, I read every single book having to do with the music business. I just knew everything about it. I was deep in the game. And so then in 2008, I sold CD Baby and just uh, kind of had to look the other way for 10 years. I just wanted to have nothing to do with the music industry for 10 years. So now it's been, well, I guess now it's been 11 years. And it was so weird to me to like turn my attention back to it again and find out that everything I knew for so many years is now completely wrong. So to even think that I know anything about the music business or I'm any kind of authority on it at all clouds my thinking. So that to me is my personal kind of like most obvious example where I had to deliberately unlearn all the stuff that I knew is true. Mm. Like even like how you get a gig, how you sell music, haha, <laughs> sell music, right? Like, does that happen anymore? You know, like just all these things. Like it was weird to just even blink and realize like, okay, so people don't even sell music anymore. That's just like a core concept that's gone. Like, wow. really, like so, um, so then there are tiny little nerdy examples in technology. Like if I'm learning a new kind of computer programming, uh, like a PostgreSQL database programming is like a style of programming called declarative or... Um, I'm thinking about learning the Elixir programming language that would uh, be a kind of programming called functional programming that's just opposite from the object-oriented programming I learned is, uh, with the Ruby language. So that's like something where you have to unlearn your way of doing things and just say, okay, like everything you knew about that way is wrong. Like you have to forget that because it's a completely different way of doing things here. And another tech example is like, when I think about things that just 10 years ago I would have needed a powerful computer to do music recording. Like 10 years ago, if you wanted to do like, you know, run a digital recording studio, you'd have to get a pretty powerful PC. Um, I see PC, I mean Mac, PC, whatever, a computer. But now you realize that just a little mobile phone or iPad can do everything you need. And those, those little changes kind of, to me, require an unlearning because you just, you think you know something about 
the way the world is and you've been stating it's a fact for a while and then you just catch yourself one day like stating something as a fact going oh wait actually that that's not true anymore i need to do, i can't just i can't just paint over that like you know when you see those old walls that are like 50 years old and people have just like put eight different kinds of wallpaper on top of the old wallpaper like you can't just wallpaper over what you know mm. you have to you know, scrape off the old mm-hmm. um and make sure you really understand that that's not true anymore, that you learned that at a time when it was true for a while, but that is not true anymore. And lastly, uh, another example is a some cultural things where we grow up in one culture. You know, I grew up in America, was born in California, grew up in Chicago and Boston and New York. And then I moved to Singapore at the age of 40 and met a lot of people that would like met a lot of Singaporeans that would tell me things like, well, I really wanted to be a musician, but my parents wanted me to get a law degree. So I'm a lawyer now and I don't make music anymore. And I'd say, no, no, that's wrong. You got to like follow your dreams, like do what you want. And it's, I spent my first year in Singapore feeling like, you know, every time I would hear that story, because I heard that same kind of story over and over and over again from Singaporeans, I'd say, no, that's wrong. And then it took me about a year before I just did more listening than talking, realized that, no, okay, this, this belief of mine that what you personally want is the most important thing, that's just my American individualism belief. Like, that's just the culture I grew up in. It's not a true fact of you know, physics or nature or something like that. It's just one way of looking at the world. But the more Confucian style way of looking at things that a lot of my Singaporean friends uh, were raised in is equally valid. It's, it's an opposite but equally valid way of looking at things, which is that what's best is what's best for your, uh, your group, you know, your family, your neighborhood, your country, that's what be- that's what's best what you personally want that doesn't matter so much almost like the um meditation metaphor we used earlier where yeah wants and desires just come and go just, just yeah you want to be a poet you want to be a musician you, you can let thought thought come and then let it go right back out again cuz you do what's best for your community <laughs> <laughs> um that was like such a i felt like i really had to unlearn what I thought of is just objectively right and wrong and say like, okay, that's this way of looking at things is equally right. So do you think it's in your writing, in your walking, you mentioned earlier where you have this moment of detachment or the unlearning sequence begins? Is there a common practice where you think you unlearn the most? Maybe not. I'm just curious. I don't even have an answer for that myself yet. Mm. I think to me, the moment usually comes when I open my mouth and say something and I hear myself say something out loud that I know isn't true anymore. And I suddenly realize like, oh, wow, Mm. I'm full of shit. I just basically lied by accident. That's, and maybe it's, maybe I feel a little um, extra bad about it. Like just because I've had some success some people look up to me as some kind of authority. So then when I say something like 
don't know, like just whatever, like the, just the music business examples I said before. When I said something that used to be true in 2000 <laughs> and it's not true anymore in 2019, I'm like, oh, I just opened my mouth and sounded like a complete idiot because like, yeah, that's not true anymore, is it? I'm going to just shut up now. So yeah, it usually comes in those kind of moments. Or like, I catch myself saying something out loud and I think, I, yeah, that's, that's wrong. I need to shut up. And never say that again because it's just not true anymore. I'm like echoing something that used to be true. Mm. But oh man, because then we can get into the whole thing because sometimes that happens with like personal preferences too. Like you catch yourself saying like, "I like tea, not coffee," and then you have to go, "Hmm, is that still true?" Like, is that, yeah, yeah. Do I really? I mean, I did. I've been saying that for years. Do I actively like tea? And we're like, "Hmm," or am I just still saying that out of reflex? Like. Do I really not like, you know, this food anymore and still like that food? Like, huh, that used to I be I like true. that. I like that. It's like a moment of awareness of your reflex. Because in, yeah. in a way, that's, that's what, I think that's when mine happens as well, whether it's I'm just regurgitating something I've said and it usually gets right. the typical response, whereas I don't really actually have that strongly held belief anymore. That's why we call it a knee-jerk reaction. I think that's supposed to reference that moment where the doctor hits your uh, under your kneecap with the hammer, yeah, and your, right. your leg just goes boom automatically. It's like somebody says, somebody brings up a subject or asks you a question, and your mouth just automatically goes boom <laughs> and <laughs> says the thing that is just your automatic reaction, and then you hear yourself say it out loud and go, "Oh, that's huh, that's not true anymore." Oops. So you have an article, again, for listeners, it's sivers.org slash, and this one is relax. Yeah. And I really like that. I mean, that's at the heart, I think, of what I'm <laughs> hoping time off as a, as a book and a podcast helps people do is find out their own rest ethic so they can relax more. You mean, you can still be very active. You can still work uh, very hard, but you can do so in a relaxing way. And that article really helped me think about this concept of slow is smooth and smooth ends up being sustainably fast and you can actually you know see something through and so in that article you mentioned about a bike ride where you had an aha moment around realizing this sort of smooth uh, less less effort do you mind sharing a bit about that sure i was living in Santa Monica, California at the time, which is right on the beach. And not just the beach, but on that beach, there's this 15 mile stretch on the Santa Monica beach where there are two different paths, one for pedestrians, one just for bikes. So it's an amazing place to hop on your bicycle and go on a 15 mile ride. And it's completely flat. And the weather in Santa Monica is always about the same. They don't really do the whole four seasons thing there. So my bike ride to me was like my, my main form of exercise. Like I'd sit there riding and programming all day long. And I'd, you know, at some point every day, I'd like stand up like, oh, okay, I've been sitting down too long. I'm going to go on a bike ride now. And so when I would, I would like give it my all. I would just, I mean, I just physically like the feeling of pushing as hard as I can. So I'd get on my bike, I'd go as fast as I can. I'd usually do it in the middle of the afternoon when it wasn't crowded too much with pedestrians. I would push, push, push as hard as I could, like go as fast as I could. And I'd time myself. I'd stop my little, start my little um, stopwatch as soon as I hit the beginning of the, the bike path. 
and I would go as fast as I could, always the exact same 15 mile loop. And when I was done, I would look at the timer and it was always 43 minutes. I was like, okay, that seems to be my max effort. Like no matter what I do, it's always 43 minutes. And I would always come home exhausted. It was like an intense 43 minutes, right? Like my face was bright red and I was panting and I was exhausted. I'd like get home and, you know, I'd have to just like lie down and like do nothing for 45 minutes and then like take a, take a shower. And then I'd like go back to my day, like two hours after I left. But I had been doing this for a number of months and I noticed that I was less, less inclined, less uh, desiring of going on this bike ride because every time I did it, I was just like absolutely flat out exhausted. So one day I was like, you know what? I don't have to push that hard. I'm going to go on the same bike ride today, but I am just going to chill. I'm going to go at like 50%. Like I'm just going to relax instead of my, you know, I'm just going to pedal like a little ride through the countryside. So yeah, I get on my bike and I just chill. I like lift it up. I was like sitting upright and I was like looking around and saw some dolphins jumping in the waves. I was like, whoa, dolphins, cool. And then um, there's this part uh, in Marina del Rey where there are always uh, pelicans uh, on the rocks and some pelicans like flew over my head. I was like, whoa, pelicans. <laughs> I go on this same 15 mile bike ride and I had set my timer because I was just kind of curious, you know, was that like an hour and a half? Did I double my time? What is it? And I looked at the timer when I was done and it said 45 minutes. And I was like, wait, what? Like, hold on. It usually takes 43 minutes. And now it took 45 minutes. Like, How could that be? I was like totally chilling. Like, how could it be that that, like all of that relaxing added just two hours. So apparently all of that exhausting, like <laughs> I had been doing had given me a 4% boost, like, which is just ridiculous. And it just feel, it was like embarrassing to think about it. So like, wait a second, I could just take it easy and chill and get 96% of the results. And one way leaves me exhausted and the other way leaves me rejuvenated. I was like, whoa, this is, this kind of, that kind of blew my mind. And it just made me think metaphorically about all the other times in life when we stress out about something or drive ourselves to exhaustion. Um, so I just try to remember that bike ride and try dialing back my effort by 50%. You know, some people you just see that, like we admire those people that just seem to do that as their nature. A few weeks ago, I saw the, uh, the new Quentin Tarantino movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, is that what it's called? And yeah. um, not a great movie, but I'm thinking about like Brad Pitt plays this guy that's just like, yeah, man, just, everything's just kind of all right whatever like just doesn't give anything too much effort he's just kind of sitting there like all right it's like we we admire those people that just just don't seem to put too much effort into anything and you know what it it all gets done anyway you know maybe i'm 20 seconds longer than people who are stressed out about it but it gets done it's fine so um yeah that's that story you know, I like that I've been looking at that in the context of, of literally of, of exercise. And there's this concept mm. called the, the flow lane, the flow zone, which is a, a basic X, Y uh, chart that 
you essentially want to be your effort that it's above boredom so that you're, <laughs> you're still active, but it's under anxiety, which is the huffing and puffing red face. And, it, and if, you, if you find that zone, as your story just showed us, you not only enjoy it, but you're more likely to continue the next day or at a higher frequency. So operating in that zone allows you to have a higher volume over time. And in the case of exercise, you know, forming a, a healthy habit versus bl blast it all out, you know, at a, at a class that you're not prepared for. Not only are you filled with anxiety, but you're super sore and likely right. not going to be looking forward to it uh, the next day because you're so sore. Hmm. Is there any other activities aside bike riding that this concept of dialing back your efforts by 50%? Parenting. I want very badly to be the best possible parent and to give my kid the best possible childhood. So sometimes I get kind of intense about that. Like despite what I said earlier about like generally following his lead, there are other things I even just do when I'm not around him or even just thought processes I go through about just wanting to give him a great childhood and be a great parent. But sometimes I just get exhausted. Like sometimes I'll wake up and I've been sick or I didn't get enough sleep or something. And I was like, Oh God. And like, I kind of, I feel bad. Like, Oh God, I'm not like at my fullest self today. And so sometimes I just say like, how would we just sit on the couch and watch YouTube? <laughs> and, <laughs> and I'm like, I feel bad bad by saying that like god i'm a bad dad we're just watching youtube on the couch but then it's like sometimes actually almost every time we've ever done that those times are also wonderful and sweet and affectionate and we're like sitting there like cuddling and watching youtube and he's showing me what he likes we're laughing and it's like bonding i was like okay yeah like parenting is probably something where i could <laughs> dial it back 50 percent and uh and get the almost the same result so I have my own take on Tim Ferriss's billboard question, which I'm sure yeah, he, he asked you in, in an interview you did with him. Mine, it has to do with a push notification. So just as widely seen, but on a digital device. So if I, Derek, gave you the ability to send a push notification on everyone's phones, what message would you like for people to see on their lock screen? <laughs> If I had to do it, literally, like it had to be just be a message. <laughs> Here's the the very un uh, John Fitch answer. The very opposite of this podcast is something I had written on the back of my notebook when I was at Berkeley School of Music, which is a quote. I think it's like a martial arts quote from somewhere, but I just loved it. It said. Whenever you are not practicing, someone somewhere else is practicing. And when you meet him, he will win. Mm. And mm. I was like, I was like, must be practicing at all times. <laughs> it's like 4 a.m., get up, must practice. Midnight, must practice. Like just, uh, I like drove myself uh, to the grave, you know, whatever. Um, but uh, so that comes to mind. Actually, something else I've been thinking of is like a... Um, a helpful saying that like stopped me in my tracks recently was um, 
something it was something about like doing what you want now versus what you want most and i was like ooh very often we think in terms of like what do i want now like what, what do i feel like doing now what do i want now and it's like yeah what do you want most i was like ooh that to me is like a great yeah, distinction so it's a great prompt maybe uh but then here's what here's what i if i really could go beyond your question and put a message and a feature on the phone then um if i'm just going to be a real bully about this the message would say sorry closed back tomorrow you know like a business when you go to like a shop then they close at five o'clock and you get there at five ten. it's just like sorry closed come back tomorrow so i like the idea of our phone this device that we think of as our little you know, this is mine. You're a little slave. Can you imagine if it kind of had a mind of its own? It was just like, eh, well, closed, back tomorrow. I'll open again at 9 a.m. tomorrow. And your phone would just like close down. Wouldn't open until tomorrow at 9 a.m. You, you just have to go, oh, um, oh, well, okay. I guess I'll, <laughs> I'll use that after nine o'clock tomorrow then. Have a good Nothing rest. I can do. Yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. Uh, a, f- a few more things I, I want to talk about. Uh, first is you've traveled a lot. Is there somewhere you want to travel to that you haven't been to yet? Everywhere. I mean, almost everywhere, but more for the education than pleasure. So I noticed that at least at this phase of my life, maybe because I just spent you know seven years in the paradise of New Zealand, I'm not looking for a hedonistic visceral kind of like oh look at the pretty mountains trip um i want to learn like i i think often about the difference between deep happy and shallow happy so shallow happy is having an ice cream uh deep happy is following your exercise schedule (laughs) you know (laughs) like it's it may not be like, wee, fun, but ultimately it makes you happier in a deeper way than eating the ice cream. I really want to understand the different worldviews, uh, the different living philosophies of the world. I'd like to understand uh, why Norwegians are like this and Spanish are like that and Italians are like this and then places that I don't know anything about at all. Like I'd like to understand Slovenia and Slovakia and Azerbaijan and Estonia. Like just these places are just like a mystery to me. I'd like to go uh, have them not be a mystery. I'd like to understand these places better. So, um, yeah. That's beautiful. It's you're you're going again, this whole concept of you're going to rather than going away from. So in this way, you're going deep into study rather than uh, escapism. The thing I said earlier about these subtracting, 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 like, no, there's nothing I'm looking to escape. Like, my life is just the way I wanted. I got rid of everything that, that wasn't. Uh, I stripped it all down. Yeah. Well, I like that there was, a, there was a, a solid consideration of this not being relevant since you do enjoy your work uh, and you alluded right. to it being me time, but also you mentioned to me that it's, it's, it's a play. And I was going to ask what your next scheduled activity of intentional rest is, but for you, it may not look like what rest for most people is. And I think that's okay and fine. And, and I'd like for you to elaborate on that 
you're sort of the opposite in, in terms of intentional rest. Like I'm going to not do anything. Right. There was, um, so last year I was seeing this woman who, um, is like an Olympic athlete and part of what, um, was super appealing when I first met her, like we just kind of met randomly and are talking and I, I said something about hanging out and she said, uh, in, in her French accent, she's like, Oh, hanging out. Is this, you know, is it people like sit on couches and say, like, I do not do this. I do not like sit on couches. I do not hang out. And I was like, Oh, it was like, Oh, my heart swelled. I was just like, I love this idea of like, I do not, you know, sit on the couches and sit and do nothing. Like life is short. I have much I want to do. Like I'm, my friends just kind of roll their eyes at me. Like I've always been intense ever since I was like 14 and I decided I wanted to be like a famous rock star. I've always been like super, super, super intense, but it's except for a brief period of two years from the age of say uh, 19 to 22. Yeah. For, except for the age of 19 to 22 uh, where I had a job for three years Except for that, everything I've done, everything I do, like all of the, my intensity is doing exactly what I want to do. Like, for example, my kid's uh, out of town right now. So uh, he and his mom are uh, traveling. And um, now that he's out of town, like I get up at 4.30 or 5 in the morning and immediately, like within five minutes, I'm writing. And I write from like 5 a.m. until... 11 p.m. every day like I I take maybe like three little 10 minute breaks to eat but that's it or like maybe I'll stop if a friend calls or you know like this this call right here like okay I'm not writing right now but other than that I'm just like working every possible moment so I realized recently that I've been using the word work for years I tell people I need to work I'm working and people would always say, kind of, you know, you're always working. I'm like, no, nah, hold on. Maybe we need a better word for this. I think I like picked the word work because it's like the socially acceptable term. When I, when I thought about, okay, what is the real definition? It's me time. So it's, it's me doing what I want to do most. You know, speaking of that message to show on somebody's phone, it's like, what do you want to do now versus what do you want to do most? So to me, like me time is like, it's about doing what I want to do most. It's, I think of it as more fun than fun. <laughs> like, so again, deep happy versus shallow happy. So fun might be like watching a movie, but then ultimately that's like the ice cream. That's like, I kind of regret it. Like, okay, the movie was all right, but that's two hours I could have been spending doing something that I want most instead of just want now. So like finishing my book or even honestly like preparing for this interview. So when you said, yeah, let's have this call. So I said, okay. And I spent probably two hours thinking and writing in preparation for our call. After we're done, I'm going to get back to programming a PostgreSQL database uh, shopping cart I'm making to put on my site so I can sell my uh, books directly from my site instead of having to rely on Amazon or whatever. But to me, this is all play. Like this is more, this is more deeply satisfying than a shallow, happy, hedonistic style of fun because it's also keeping in line with my beliefs. It's, it's accomplishing my goals. It's scratching a years-long itch. Like some of the things I'm doing now are things I've been wanting to do for years. 
and they finally like you know moved up the queue and i'm doing them now it's a satisfying satisfying curiosities or feeling that exciting brain tingle of learning new things or feeling that great pride of finishing something difficult so to me there's no deeper happiness than setting out to do something difficult and achieving it so to me that's the ultimate play like that's the ultimate reward that's the deepest happiness but i wouldn't call that leisure or rest it's but it is play but i call it work when i'm explaining it to strangers <laughs> you know it's, it's it's almost like that um when i fly on airplanes and somebody next to me says oh what do you do I used to say I'm a musician, which would lead to like 20 follow-up questions. Like, eh, what kind of music do you do? Is it something I can hear? Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, ugh, I don't want to talk to a stranger next to me on a plane. So, so I found that um, like about 20 years ago, I started saying when people ask, what do you do? I say, uh, computer programmer. And they go, oh. <laughs> it's like a wonderful conversation stopper, right? Like, yeah. Um, so I find the same that when I just say work. Like, I'm working. Mm. Uh, sorry, I'm busy. I'm working. It just kind of, people go, oh, okay. It's, it's just like this answer that gets people to just leave you alone. And I understand, like, if you read, you know, Stephen Pressfield's books, you know, he's like talking about doing the work and being a pro. And so, yeah, he absolutely calls it work. And so a lot of other creative artists, they say, this is my work. When, yeah, if you want to sit down and redefine it with them, sure, they could probably come up with a more accurate, word but we just let's we, it's okay to just use the word work because we're communicating it to others one of the goals i have after the time off book is it feels absolutely necessary to follow it up with time on which is diving more mm. into into work ethic but and there's plenty of books out there that dance around the concept of work ethic and upgrading your work ethic whereas i wasn't able to find a lot for rest ethic and that's been mm. um that's kind of been my focus, but I've, you've given me some really good ideas here around this concept of work being play and, and, and the me time concept that, um, you've seen, um, Stefan Sagmeister's talk. Absolutely. That literally was okay, the nexus of the project. Good. Okay, good. Yeah. We have several profiles in, in the book and he's one of the, the ones that I had to, cause that Ted talk made me go, I mean, it woke me up to, I ended up taking a, my own uh, sabbatical and that nice. was a life-changing event for me. And I then became obsessed with sabbaticals, but then that opened up into well, what are all these different elements of rest ethic that people do? And some of them are very active, some are, are not. And uh, just been a fascination with what value uh, lies in, in, in rest ethic. Did you see the, the, the um, there's a book, I think it's the Talent Code. There was a book, uh, um, forgetting his exact title right now, but the, it was written by, I think, two co-authors that often coach athletes. They work with athletes, and they use the comparison of uh, professional athletes, how the way to, maybe it's actually called maximum performance or maximum achievement. whole point is that we need to, uh, instead of trying to sustain a certain level of performance, you need to do it like athletes where you play hard and then rest hard. Mm -hmm. So it's like you go out and yes, you, you sprint on the field for whatever you run the, the 50 yard line down or whatever, but then it's like, but then you rest deeply 
And they say that every athlete has this thing of just like push hard, rest hard, push hard, rest hard, um, because they can't, <clears throat> unless you're an ultra marathoner, uh, anything else uh, is not an ongoing sustained thing. Um, I'm forgetting it off the top of my head, but it would just take me two seconds on the computer later to find it. So email me if you want. So uh, the talent, there is the talent code. I'm looking at it right now, which was written by Daniel Coyle. I'm looking at that right now. Greatness isn't born. It's grown. Here's how. Does that ring a bell? Um, Well, I read that one too. I'm not sure if that's the, um, hold on. You know what? Give me one second. I just have to search for the word athlete there. Oh, I totally misremembered the title. So it's called The Power of Full Engagement by Jim Lower and Tony Schwartz. And my little blurb I wrote about it said, the authors worked with the best athletes and executives for years and found out that the best ones know how to push themselves, then recuperate, push and recuperate. You take this same approach to your emotional, mental, physical, and even spiritual life, and it's a powerful metaphor. Um, Think in terms of sprints, not marathons. Be fully in whatever you're in, then give time to recuperate, but push further each time past your comfort zone, like a good exercise plan. So, um, yeah, I know you're at the uh, the finishing of your book and the final editing, but um, you might want to read The Power of Full Engagement for a little last-minute inspiration. That would be great. I'm actually looking. We have a section called The Future of Work that we ended on where our argument is that that ability is important, and it's backed up by a quote from Naval Ravikant, who was the founder of AngelList. And he mm-hmm. once said that 40 hour work weeks were a relic of the industrial age and that we now live more in a knowledge economy. And he says, knowledge workers function to your point, like athletes. And so you train and then you sprint and then you rest to reassess and repeat. Mm. I, I had forgotten this and it just popped up in my, in my memory that in the book rest, which is written by Dr. Pang, he talks about that the no one that there's it's funny how it comes back full circle to our conversation, Derek. You mentioned the 10,000 hour rule. Mm-hmm. He's like that 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 study was done on a number of dimensions of different types of talent, but one was musicians and violin players specifically. And he said what they didn't what's not commonly talked about is that that mastery included around 45,000 hours of rest. Yeah, nice. so that the, the effort could be learned. Nice. The last question I, I have for you, Derek, is I have friends around me as well as uh, my mother has been going through some mental health issues that they're all correlated to being extremely burned out. And in my estimations, it's from not taking enough rest or solitude, enough me time. Do you have any words of encouragement for those people out there that right now are feeling really burned out or overwhelmed? I don't know if anything I could say would help, but there's one story in my past where I was kind of in my final days of running my company 12 years ago, and it was really stressing me out. I was feeling overwhelmed. And I said something about how I have to do this and I have to do that. And I was working at a co- working with a coach at the time who said, uh, when I said, well, I, I have to do this and I have to that do that. And he said, you don't have to do anything. I said, well, yeah, I have to 
pay my employees. I have to pay my taxes. I have to ship customers orders that they've paid for. And he said, no, you don't. I said, yes, I do. Of course I do. I have to, of course I have to pay my employees and just ship the customer's order. And he said, no, you don't. He said, look, I'm not just being glib or quippy or trying to be contrary. And he said, this is a really important point. You need, you need to really understand this before we talk about anything else. He said, you don't have to do anything. Like you could just right now decide to go lay down in the grass in a park for the next 10 years and do nothing. And he said, yes, after a while, your employees would stop showing up to work because you were no longer paying them. And yeah, a couple of them might try to file some kind of small claims lawsuit and you'd get notices in the mail in your mailbox, but maybe you're not even checking your mail. And he said, he said, if you don't pay your taxes, then in five years, the IRS will notice and they'll come after you and you'll have to pay them now with interest. But he said, this is a, there's a difference. He said, you don't have to do anything. He said, you just need to understand that if you don't, there may be consequences um, and probably less consequences than you think there would be. Um, but he said, you really need to make sure at all times that you understand that you're choosing to do whatever it is you're doing, but you absolutely don't have to. You need to understand that difference. I mean, it's pretty esoteric, but sometimes I think of that when, when I'm feeling overwhelmed and I'm like, I have to do this and I have to do that. I'm like, oh, wait, mm, I don't have to. <laughs> I'm choosing to. You know, I'm a terrible, you know that uh, some people like to have like an accountability buddy? Yeah. I'm, I'm, a, I'm the most terrible accountability buddy. I just basically say no to anybody who asks me to like get into any kind of like accountability situation with them because it, to me it always comes back to like, well, you don't have to do anything. It's like, but we promised each other. We was like, nah, don't have, I mean, you don't have to choosing to but maybe i don't want to anymore so no um that's i don't know if that's useful to anybody you know i think a lot of that anxiety and overwhelm is a deep belief in in trying to manage so many have tos right mm. Mm. yeah i mean you know the subtraction process we talked about half an hour ago of like it's really interesting to look at all of these things in your life and realizing that you can just quit almost all of them, maybe even all of them. You know, it's like this, all these things, situations we got ourselves into. Oh man, so many times, like in the past, I used to say yes to a lot of conferences and events and people would ask me to speak and I'd say yes and people would ask me to do this and that. And I'd say yes to everything. And a couple times, it was just overwhelmingly, not impossible, but really inconvenient or just really um what's the word i'm looking for uh bad for me <laughs> to to follow through and do the thing i said i was going to do and like appear at the conference i said i was going to appear at so there were just a couple times in my past where it's like i felt horrible about it but i was like hey i'm really sorry i just i need to cancel i know i said i was going to come speak at your conference but i just there's i just can't and I'd like you know, you can imagine before that phone call happened, I'm sure there was like 15 hours of me wrestling and feeling terrible, like, no, but I have to. I said I would. I'm, there's no way I could cancel. I'd be horrified. I'm, I'm sure that would like mess up their whole event. And it was so funny that every time I'd get into one of these situations, because I think it happened like three or four different times, and I'd tell them, hey, I'm really sorry. I'm so sorry. You know, I'm so sorry. And each time they would go, 
oh, okay, no problem. Thanks for telling me. <laughs> I was like, it was like no big deal. Like my cancellation was just the total nothing. It was like, you know, one of a hundred things on their to-do list for the day. I was like, oh, okay, we'll get a different speaker. Whereas to me, I was, you know, all rot and upset about it. Uh, so I remember that too, that these things that I, doesn't, it, like, it doesn't matter that I said yes to it. If it's not working for me, I said yes at a time where I was predicting that it would be good for me, but predictions are usually wrong. And now that reality's here in front of us, it uh, looks like I made a wrong prediction. I have, mm-hmm. Now I just have no problem saying like, mm-hmm. sorry, predicted wrong. I'm sorry, this is upsetting. Yes. There have been some big ones in the last couple of years. I almost bought a house and like literally like, you know, it's like months into the process and the day before I was like supposed to send through the wire transfer. I was like, you know what? Not feeling it anymore. I'm really sorry. I thought I wanted this house, but I don't. <laughs> they were like, what? How dare you? I was like, sorry. Yeah, obligations, events I said I, would gonna, I was going to do. Yeah, there are a lot of these things we, we've said yes to, but it's a little upsetting for the people on the receiving end when you say, sorry, I can't do it anymore. There was actually a really bit of good advice in um, David Allen, who wrote the famous Getting Things Done book. He actually had a follow-up book that hit me a little harder called Ready for Anything, where he said that, yes, we should follow through on all of our commitments. You know, the opposite of what I just said. He said, anything you've committed to doing, make yourself do it. He said, because I want you to feel the pain of saying yes to things. He said, feel the pain so that next time somebody asks you to do something, you'll remember how painful that was last time you said yes to something. And then you'll know to say no to it in the future. Mm. So yeah, finish all of your current obligations, quit the ones that you know, you're allowed to quit, but the things you said you would do, Finish it up and do it, but remember that pain and do not say yes to things anymore unless you really want it. Which is the subject of my next book, Hell Yeah or No. <laughs> yeah, that's a great, great plug at the absolute last second. I loved it. Yeah. Uh, so speaking of that, was there anything uh, that you wanted to share that I didn't ask or? No. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> You mentioned Sivers.org. Is there anywhere else yeah. that people can say hello? The, the local pizzeria. <laughs> if, if you happen to be there when I walk in, say hello. Uh, <laughs> other than that, uh, Sivers.org is probably the best place to find me. And you'll see that I, I do actually enjoy checking my email. I like it when people introduce themselves and yeah. say hello. It, it makes my inbox a little more interesting when somebody... Uh, tells me something about themselves. They don't have to ask a question. So I always encourage people to introduce themselves and email and say hello. So yeah, go to Sivers.org and you'll see the contact email me link. Awesome, Derek. This has been a real honor for me. And I appreciate of, of all the things that you considered, you prepped beautifully for this in such a thoughtful way. And uh, I can speak for the audience ahead of time that uh, we're grateful. Thanks, John. Yeah thank you so much for listening to that entire conversation if you made it this far thank you very much i hope after hearing derek and i talk you have a bit of an upgrade to your perspective and maybe we'll think more about less saying no and cultivating more silence and solitude for yourself. 
and not work so hard so that you get overworked. Derek and a few other people are covered in the book Time Off, which will be coming out in 2020. The book is going to be fantastic and beautiful. We're working with a wonderful illustrator. And you can subscribe for updates at timeoffbook.com. Max Frenzel and I have been working hard on the book, and we're super excited to get it into your hands. So check us out online. Have a calm rest of your day. I appreciate your attention. Thank you.